bro shit. It's time for some gay bro shit. Get into a gay bro shit. Let's fuck with a gay bro shit. Hello, bros and hoes and ladies and gentle thumbs and literally everybody else. This is Gay Bro Shit. It is a podcast for people whose dreams are bigger than their genes. And you can call me Brody Jenner because I too am not talking to Caitlin right now. So today's episode is going to be all about learning to accept your genetic limitations and also learning to embrace your genetic potential. And these are really two sides of the same coin because the path to loving yourself and your body first begins by accepting what it cannot be or what it cannot do. And so much of our self-hatred is rooted in resisting this. So we're going to start by talking about this idea of categorizing bodies into set types and why this is actually complete nonsense. And then we're going to get into actual genetic variation and how you can identify where you might fall and what that might allow you to achieve. And we're really going to focus in on identifying what is within and what is outside of your control. And finally, I'll go over some bro science shit and about figuring out what your muscular development uh, or muscular potential is. And as is usually the case, one of my dogs is in the room with me. Oh, she's going up the stairs right now. And I'm not on TikTok, uh, but if I were, I'd probably make Pitbull videos. And uh, I definitely want to make a video of her set to Fleetwood Max everywhere because she absolutely wants to be with me everywhere. And it's adorable, but... uh, you know, she makes noise in the background. So there you go. Anyway, to start out with, I want to talk about the myth of somatotypes, which is the idea that most people can fall into one of three body types. So what are these three body types? The first one is endomorph, and that's bigger frames And these people are prone to have more body fat and have a harder time losing it, allegedly. Then we have a mesomorph. These are people who are naturally strong and muscular with a narrow waist and wide shoulders. And these people allegedly have an easy time gaining muscle and staying lean. And then we have finally the ectomorph. And these are people who have a naturally thin build with difficulty adding muscle, but also difficulty adding fat. So on the surface, this idea sounds plausible to us because of confirmation bias, meaning it sounds like it must be true because it matches what we already believe. We can all easily categorize ourselves and everyone we know into one of these body types. So it sounds good. And our brains are pattern-seeking machines that always want to create the simplest possible rules to explain the world. So it has to work as little as possible to recognize what it sees. And you'll see a lot of marketing on the internet, uh, or I don't know, other places as well, 
that tries to sell you on the idea of eating or training specifically for your body type. But of course, there's a problem with this, and that is there is no such thing as body type. There are 7 billion bodies on this earth, and all of them are different. And we can't neatly categorize people into one of three categories, or at least not three categories that will magically explain how your body looks and what it can and can't do. Looking deeper into this concept, you actually find that the root of this idea is pretty dark and is rooted in good old-fashioned racism and xenophobia. It's literally that meme where the Scooby gang takes the hood off and it was racism the whole time. So the idea of somatotypes originates with a psychologist in the 1940s by the name of William Herbert Sheldon. And note here that he is a doctor, but he is a doctor not specializing in internal medicine or orthopedics or endocrinology or anything that might actually explain the shape of somebody's body, but he is more concerned with the study of the mind. And his goal, as it turns out, was to link body types to criminal behavior. So in his version of these body types, the mesomorph is described as competitive, extroverted, and tough. That's that's the body type in the middle. The ectomorph is described as being intelligent, but also anxious and introverted. So remember, that's the skinny one. And then the endomorph, the fat one, is supposed to be outgoing and friendly, but also lazy and selfish. And therefore, this was the type thought to most likely be criminal. So these are not body types. These are stereotypes. And Sheldon got his inspiration from the so-called study of phrenology, which was this idea that the shape of your skull determines your personality, your mental health, your behaviors, and your moral character, which of course is just absolutely bullshit. And Another inspiration point was physiognomy, which is a similar idea where people thought that the shape of your face determined these things as well. So also bullshit. Sheldon thought he could take these concepts of looking at the shape of faces and the shape of your skulls to determine characteristics and apply it to the shape of the whole body. His early research involved photographing thousands of male undergrad students naked from the neck down without their consent, and the photos were originally taken for a posture study, but Sheldon co-opted them again, took them without their consent, and used them for his research. And so that's alarming in and of itself, but... Where all of these ideas culminate is with the eugenics movement, which, if you don't know, was this idea that we should seek to create a superior human race by only selectively breeding humans with desirable traits. In this country, in the United States and in other countries, people who had mental health issues, physical disabilities or deformities were forcibly sterilized so that they could not reproduce. And some of the people who were forcibly sterilized were not ill or disabled in any way. They were just undesirable. So this included black and brown people, native people, immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe, and Jewish people. 
So this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is based on the idea that physical superiority exists. And as I mentioned, Sheldon was developing these theories in the early 1940s. And what else was happening in the 1940s? Well, over in Europe, uh, we had Adolf Hitler taking eugenics to its logical conclusion and sterilizing, but also outright killing millions of people. So looking back at this body type idea, we can see how they might be influenced by certain racial stereotypes. So black and brown people often have thicker bodies and were often considered lazy by white people. Jewish people, on the other hand, were uh, often stereotyped for being skinny and also stereotyped for being anxious and neurotic, etc. So there's no scientific basis for this idea of body types. And it's also deeply problematic, but still somehow we see it all over the place. And it's wild because you can still see this concept referred to by healthcare providers, institutions, accrediting bodies, including the the American Council on Exercise, which is one of the main uh, providers of personal training certifications. And these people should all probably know better. And If I search any of the terms related to those three body types, I get articles from universities and medical clinics, and it's just, it's bananas because this is such an easy thing to disprove, but it's so powerful because it's such an easy concept to sell, and it gives some really easy answers about how to quote-unquote fix your body. So anytime you see somebody trying to sell you on the on this idea realize that they either don't know what they're talking about or they're just trying to make money off of you and run run in the opposite direction you don't need to eat for your body type because you don't have a body type you don't need to work out for your body type because you don't have a body type you just have your body so now through modern genetics we are beginning to unpack the genome and also how genes are expressed. And we're able to start looking into the range of human bodies. And we're really only just now starting to unpack this stuff. So it's still very new. But we have the entire genome sequence. We pretty much know what every gene does at this point. But the other factor is that just because we have a gene or a gene sequence, that doesn't actually mean that that trait is going to show up in our bodies. So, for example, height is genetic, mostly, but only to a point. So within your genetics for height, there is a deviation of up to three or even more inches on either side. So two people with identical genetics, let's say identical twins, one could be five foot six and one could be six foot tall because height is multifactorial. So the height that you end up with has to do with childhood conditions and nutrition and injuries and some degree of randomness as well. Like I imagine I would probably be taller than five foot eight if I didn't eat mostly cereal, pasta, fries, and candy when I was a kid. And if I had gotten more sleep because I was a bit of an insomniac, but 
I'm fine being a bit short because it doesn't negatively impact my life in any meaningful way, though there's definitely some financial advantages to being taller. So going back to those three body types, I have two brothers, and one of them is like your typical ectomorph, and one of them is like your typical endomorph, and I'm naturally closer to a mesomorph, but our DNA is almost exactly alike, but somehow we all have totally different body shapes. So height is obviously a genetically influenced trait. Another one is bone structure and bone size. So you can usually tell your bone size by measuring your ankles and your wrists because those don't really change. Those aren't places where we store a lot of fat. You can also measure your neck to some extent, although there's a lot of muscles in your neck, so that's not the most uh, directly correlated place. But in terms of bone structure, you might have hips that are wider than your shoulders or vice versa, or maybe they're exactly the same. And people with bigger bones and wider bone structure often carry more weight. And they also can usually carry more muscle mass as well. So it's funny because that line that Cartman has in South Park where he says, I'm not fat, I'm big boned. Like that's at least partially true. Even if, you know, the intention is to make fun of him for being delusional, which whatever. We also have uh, the length of our limbs, which so your arms and legs differ. Sometimes people have longer arms and shorter legs or vice versa. Sometimes they're pretty much the same. And you also have your torso length where some people have really short torsos. Some people have really long torsos. So when it comes to, say, physical capabilities, people with longer arms are usually better at deadlifting, whereas people with longer legs are better at squatting. And that's because the length of your limbs determines the torque necessary to produce a movement. The concept is called a moment arm, which is basically like if you think about a fulcrum, the further the weight is distributed away from that you know, the fulcrum, then the easier it is to create enough torque to move that arm. So yay, simple machines. Uh, We also have a genetically determined propensity to store body fat. So people of African descent, people of Polynesian or Mesoamerican descent tend to store more fat, while people of East Asian descent tend to store less fat. But not always. There is body diversity everywhere in all populations in every ethnic and cultural group. To date, they've found at least 40 different genes that influence body fat storage. And they might be active or inactive to different degrees depending on any number of other factors. One thing we do know about bodies is that they seem to have a set fat point where the body will easily get down to that point, but trying to go lower than that point becomes a real struggle because your body just doesn't want to be any smaller. So your set fat point might be bigger or it might be smaller and neither one is bad or good. Although in the standards of culture, we would think that being having a smaller one would probably be better, but this is outside of your control. So it kind of doesn't really matter what yours is, but knowing that your body 
doesn't want to be below a certain body fat percentage might actually be really freeing for you because it will hopefully allow you to let go of that expectation. So if you're somebody who's dieting hard and you start to plateau and your nutrition's still good, your energy, your exercise is still good, and you're just not seeing any further decreases, then that just might mean that you're hitting your set point for the lowest you can go. In my family, I look at old photos of my grandparents' generation and great-grandparents, and every one of them is very sturdy-looking. So by contemporary standards, we would call them fat. Um, And compared to them, I'm on the slimmer side. But looking at them, I know that I'm not meant to be particularly lean because my direct ancestors were bigger long before obesity was ever considered an epidemic. And before fast food and processed food, because some people are just fatter and they always have been. And I should also note that these family members mostly lived well into their 70s and 80s. So in their case, being fat in and of itself wasn't a health concern and they still had long lives because, again, health and fatness are not directly correlated. Now, another thing that we can look for genetically is whether or not we have endurance or power capabilities. So there is a set of genes that most people have one of each. There's one endurance gene and one power gene, but some people only have the endurance gene. And these are likely the people who are great at running long distances and I don't know, maybe cycling or swimming or cross country skiing, any number of sports that I don't do. And then there's also some people who only have the power gene which is also called the sprinter gene. So they can run really fast for short stretches, but they can't run a marathon or they can compete in powerlifting or strongman, but maybe not the CrossFit games. So I've done my DNA test and I can identify that I only have that sprinter gene. So naturally I'm going to be good at generating a lot of force over a short distance, but I sure as can't fuck run more than a few miles and it's okay. It's equally good to have any combination of these genes, but knowing what you do have might make it easier to accept that I'm probably never going to be a triathlete and I'm fine with that because I don't really want to have to poop and pee myself while running. You know, I'd rather just use the bathroom. Similarly, the genes for getting strong aren't the same genes as for getting big muscles. So a lot of people can get big muscles and also get pretty strong, but some people definitely don't. Um, Like you can look at some really elite power lifters and strength athletes who can squat like 500 plus pounds, but looking at them that they don't look jacked at all. Meanwhile, you have bodybuilders with huge muscles who maybe aren't actually that strong compared to, let's say, a strength athlete who's smaller than them. You also have variants in how your connective tissue grows and develops. So your muscles might be able to lift a lot of weight, but your tendons can't. And your tendons tend to grow slower than your muscles. So it's really common for people to 
outgrow their connective tissue and get injured, uh, especially among steroid users. That's kind of a rite of passage. Speaking of steroids, you also have genetic variability in how you respond to androgens. That would be the male sex hormones. Some people hyper-respond and can get huge doing only a small amount of drugs. And some people can take a ton of drugs and barely get any bigger at all and everything in between. So we're definitely going to cover this in a future episode. But just know that if you're having trouble gaining muscle, that throwing a bunch of drugs into the mix may not even work for you at all. So there are more genetic factors out there, but these are kind of the main ones that shape how our bodies look. In gay culture, in queer culture, there are a few aesthetics that are clearly acceptable and considered desirable, and thinness has always been desirable, especially in younger gay men. It's almost an expectation. I remember going out at 18 and feeling so fat compared to all the shirtless bodies I saw at the club. Muscularity particularly in older men, has also always been desirable. It tends to be the dominant look, aside from the slim, barely legal one. And our bodies may not look anything like that, but we are still deserving of being loved and appreciated and being thought of as sexy. And something I think about a lot when I think that I need to change my body to be more attractive to others is that the kind of person who would only want to date me or sleep with me when I'm looking really good is probably not the type of person who I would want to be in a relationship with at all. So just think on that. I think the rise of the bear subculture has been really empowering in a lot of ways because it's, uh, it's a way of making other bodies sexy, particularly bigger bodies. But I also have noticed that the mainstream bear aesthetic has definitely shifted from hairy men with bellies to a much more muscled look with a lower body fat percentage. So it's interesting to see how even in subcultures, things regress toward the mean as that subculture becomes more mainstream. We will definitely talk about bear events in the future, particularly about what I just said. Uh, I also think it's been really interesting to see how OnlyFans and other sites with user-generated porn content has democratized porn and allows people who don't fit into the conventional mold of a commercial porn star, and people can still make money and get people off. And while the people who probably make the most on these sites are conventionally attractive, lean people, I don't think that's universally true. But we also, uh, by the same token, need to recognize that bigger bodies are often still fetishized in ways that might be a little gross. And that's because uh, it can be an extension of fetishizing the other or the exotic when bigger bodies are actually just normal bodies. They're not exotic. They're not the other. They're just one different variation on the human body. So if you're struggling to accept your body the way that it already is, one thing that can help is learning how to practice body neutrality. So we probably all know what body positivity is. That's a phrase that has been repeated to death recently and you can probably put two and two together and figure out 
that uh, body neutrality is a middle path. So body neutrality focuses not on how your body looks, but what it can do. And it recognizes sometimes you're not going to like the way that your body looks. And sometimes you might not like the way that your body functions and what it can't do, especially if you're disabled or have chronic health concerns. So we don't have to love our bodies. That's what body positivity says, that we have to love our bodies. We don't have to love them, but we do need to accept them for how they already are. So if you find yourself having negative thoughts when you look in the mirror, instead of saying, I hate my hips or I hate my nose, what you're actively going to do is replace that negative thought with a neutral thought. And a good go-to is, I have a normal human body. Or if we're talking about a specific feature like your nose, be like, my nose is the normal human nose. And this is a practice. It's something you have to work on and you're not going to just magically stop thinking negative thoughts about yourself. But what you can do is learn to instantly identify that negative thought and then replace it with a neutral thought. So it's a great idea if you're struggling with recurring thoughts to write those down and then come up with a neutral replacement thought and have that at the ready. So rehearse saying those things to yourself so that when the need arises, like you have that negative thought in the mirror, it's there, it's ready to go, it's rehearsed. And you don't have to spend a lot of time doing this. You maybe just need a few minutes a day at most. And soon enough, it will become something that you do and it will genuinely help you. And sometimes you're going to find yourself falling back into your old negative thoughts and lose the ability to challenge and replace them. But the good news is you can always return to this active thought management work at any time. And it doesn't take a lot of effort. You just kind of have to repeat the same process where you sit down, identify those negative thoughts and come up with a replacement and then commit to actually putting that into practice. Great. So now it's time to get in some bro science shit. So go ahead and stop the episode here if this is not something that's going to be of interest to you, but it's time to get a little nerdy here. So obviously I think that practicing body neutrality is a good tool for people to learn to accept yourself just as you are. But if you're chasing aesthetic goals, and a lot of us are chasing aesthetic goals, including myself to a big extent, then we might actually want some tools to assess where we actually are and where we can go. So firstly, I had intended to start this section off by talking about body composition, and that became so complicated that I had to spin it off into a separate episode. And that episode is actually released before this one, so if you haven't, please go back and listen to that. So the best tool for assessing your muscular development is called the FFMI, and that's the Fat-Free Mass Index. This is a formula that combines your height, weight, and body fat percentage to place you on a scale of muscular development. So we had to talk about body fat percentage first because you need to know that number in order to be able to get your FFMI. And if you've listened to that episode, or maybe you're not going to, so I'll just summarize it right here. 
it's impossible to get an accurate body fat percentage. So everything we're going to be talking about here is approximate. So if you're using the FFMI, you should probably input a few different body fat percentages based on the range that you think you're in, and then that will give you a good range of results. So plug all your numbers into the FFMI and see what you get. The scale for men is between 17 at the low end and... Uh, 25 on the very high end, although it actually does go above this, and we'll talk about that in a second. Meanwhile, for women, the scale goes from 13 to 20. And, you know, again, it can go higher, but 99% of people are going to fall into this range. And of course, just like BMI or any other scale that uses sex as a criteria, it's going to get very confused when someone is trans or non binary or otherwise not cisgendered. And I would love to see something more expansive, but it might be really hard to come up with a system like that with how many different options there are for gender identity and expression. So yeah, we may never see anything like that. And obviously that sucks for people who are not cisgendered, but it's just the reality of the situation, unfortunately. All right. So back to the scale, basically anything under an 18, again, we're talking about men here is considered below average or underdeveloped from 18 to 20 would be considered average. And I believe 19 is the statistical average for all adult men. Uh, 20 to 22 would be considered above average and then 23 and above is considered quote unquote superior. And, uh, Beyond 26, you're almost certainly using steroids. Apparently, the biggest number ever recorded by a confirmed natural lifter was about 28, which is which is about where most pro bodybuilders who are using steroids are. But it is possible to get there naturally with very exceptional genetics. So I discovered this metric six or so months ago. And I'm not actually sure. Oh, I know where I came. I was because I was going down the YouTube rabbit hole and this was something that got suggested to me. And I was kind of shocked because I had never heard of it during my 10 years of training people professionally. But that's probably because I was working with the general population rather than people who were specifically bodybuilders. This tends to be a niche thing. So usually when people in the fitness community are using the scale, they're doing it to try and assess if someone has achieved their physique naturally or not. So the theory goes that if you are a 25 or above, you are highly likely to be on steroids. And in fact, the average steroid user scores 24.8 on the scale. So what shocked me was that when I entered my numbers, again, this was six months ago, I came back with a score of 25.6. So looking at the statistical distribution, I'm basically in the top maybe half a percent or maybe even top tenth of a percent. And at the time, this I was completely natural. I've never used testosterone. And... I was still adding muscle even at the time. So I think it's actually possible for me to get 
to that 28 number naturally, but I'm doing TRT now, so we'll never know. So for me, finding out that I was already beyond what most elite natural bodybuilders can achieve was super reaffirming because when my body dysmorphia crops up, I always think my muscles are maybe just a little bit bigger than average, but statistically, I'm not even close to average. And for the most part, the last 20 years, I have not been training specifically to get big because I've been focused on strength and sports performance for playing rugby. So again, who knows what I could have achieved naturally if I had been focusing on bodybuilding specifically during that time period but we're going to find out soon. How about that? So there are um, two other tools that you can use to assess what your maximum potential is. The first one is called the Casey butt formula. Yes, that is the, the real name, the Casey hyphen butt formula. And just Google that you'll find it. And this formula uses your height and weight, but also adds in your wrists and ankle circumference because As I previously mentioned, those are the areas where you can reliably measure bone size because there's not much fat in those places or a lot of muscle either. So you input these numbers and at the end you get a maximum number for how much lean mass you can have for your frame size. It will also give you projected measurements. So you can say, oh, looks like I could potentially add another three inches to my arms or whatever. And this is why I could say I could probably get to the 28 on the FFMI naturally because inputting this maximum mass number that I got into the FFMI calculator, I get an FFMI of 28.5. And that would maybe be the highest ever recorded. So apparently I have freak genetics for muscle size and I had no fucking clue. This blew my mind. And I'm not saying this to inflate my own ego. I just am saying it because again, that was very, very different than the way that I was viewing myself. I thought again, that at best I was somewhat above average with very big legs. Right. But again, that's not, that's not the case. Like I'm, I am very much an outlier. So that's why I recommend maybe actually trying some of these tools to see what you can discover. So one more calculator we're going to talk about is developed by a exercise scientist named Menno Henselmans. He is a big internet exercise science nerd presence, and he does the same formula, but he takes some additional measures and he spits out your maximum muscle mass. But he also says uh, in this calculator, what parts of your body are underdeveloped or overdeveloped in proportion. So I'm going to give you the URL for that here. It's because I'm going to have to spell it out for you because the name's weird. So it's M E N N O H E N S E L M A N S all one word.com slash F F M I hyphen calculator. So again, that's going to give you a more sophisticated reading on what your maximum muscle potential might be. So I think these are fun tools in assessing what your ultimate 
potential might be. And you can use them to set goals for yourself. But of course, don't take these numbers as gospel and allow yourself to get discouraged if you can't hit them. So for me, now I know that I can potentially add another 20 pounds of muscle and I'm about to head into a bulk phase to see what I can achieve this winter. And I'm definitely torn a little bit because realistically, I could probably spend a year or more of dedicated bulking, dedicated training in a bodybuilder focus to get to my maximum potential. But doing so means that after I'm done, I'm going to have to go into a much longer cut period to get back into the body fat range I'm happy with because, as I previously said, in the fitness primer, when you bulk to gain muscle, you usually gain fat at at least the same rate. But, you know, I put a picture up on the internet and the consensus is my social media followers think that I should be bulking. In fact, some of them think that I should never cut, which that's cute. Uh, <laughs> but realistically, I'm not sure that I can eat 4,000 calories a day and keep that up, but we're going to try it. We're going to see how it goes. I'll report back. Of course, some of you out there are like, God, I wish I could eat 4,000 calories a day. That sounds amazing. It's just, it's, it really is an insane amount of food, especially when you're trying to eat food that is high nutritious quality. Um, it's really e easy to eat 4,000 calories a day of pizza and ice cream. And honestly, I probably could do that if I really wanted to. I just don't know that it would make me feel very good. So trying to do it in a way that is conscious of getting vegetables and fruit and fiber and whole grains and lean protein and not an excessive quantity of fat. It makes it really tricky. I'm just, I'm going to be honest with you and I'll see how it goes. Anyway, if we do want to add drugs into the mix, we're going to say that unequivocally using steroids will allow you to push or exceed your genetic limitations for muscle size. And for some people that might be worth the risk. So in the next few weeks, I'm going to be covering testosterone and also steroids. Those are going to be two separate episodes and talking about the realities of what they do and what they don't do. And hopefully I can help people make some safer choices out of that because I don't believe that they're all good or all bad. Everything is nuanced, of course, and it very much depends on the person and we will get into that. I think it's really fucking fascinating. But that's it for this episode. Before you go, don't forget to follow this podcast on Instagram and at Threads. It's Gabro Shit, all one word. And also leaving a review or liking this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it will really help to grow the audience. And of course, sharing the show with people you think might like it helps as well. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for liking and sharing and reviewing. And I'll see you later. Bye, bros. That's why we're living it up at the butt sex disco, getting it on with all of my homos. Loving it up at the butt sex disco, dancing around like I'm Yoko Ono. Queering it up at the butt sex disco, spinning around to fend up my phone. Gaining it up at the butt sex disco, never going home.